Being the Worst, Episode 28, recorded Tuesday, April 2nd, 2013. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsmen. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat dig into the LOCAD CQRS project that laid the code foundation for their current projects. This open source sample provides a working slice of a production system's registration and user management subdomains that were implemented with aggregates and event sourcing. While they get into the details of its multi-aggregate implementation, they cover the communication and workflow between these aggregates, how data storage and querying is achieved, and even get into some authentication and authorization options. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. So, Renat, in the last episode, we talked about some of your thoughts for the future infrastructure of the being the worst GTD domain. And I know, based on Twitter and some of the emails that you sent me, that you've been doing a lot of cool research and some discussions internally about uh, what direction you might head with that. So I'm excited to get into that once you uh, finalize sort of the initial direction you want to go and uh, start writing the code for that. So um, that's what we talked about last time. And in this one, I actually was going to ask you some questions about LOCAD CQRS, uh, mainly because I was working on some stuff on my own and started asking you questions and uh, was hoping you could just maybe uh, point me in the right direction. We thought we'd record it in case it ended up making sense. (laughs) So uh, here we are. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Okay, so I downloaded the latest version of LOCAD CQRS, and when I looked at it in the past, obviously we're we're talking about very similar concepts uh, so far on the show. So a lot of the stuff it really isn't new. It's just we have maybe the latest thinking of yours in the being the worst samples, and this is might be a little bit older. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really old. But it's all very uh, similar. You know, like I find myself very familiar going around and the structures are very similar. So I wasn't uh, finding myself very lost except for some of the stuff that we haven't really gotten into yet with our expeditions because it just hasn't come up on the study map yet. So this might come out of order as it relates to the study map and maybe we didn't even want to get there <laughs> with the GTD sample yet. So uh, if this comes out out of order, that's just what it is. We're just talking about this project and we'll work our way back to it if we need to. So when I got into the aggregate, so I'm looking at the uh, SAS, dot domain uh, project. Mm-hmm. And when you look in the aggregates folder, there's three folders instead of one. Uh, obviously, so far, we've only had one. So there's three aggregates in the sample. And my understanding from the past was that you guys would actually at LOCAD take if not this exact project, something very similar internally, and you would sort of use this as a template to start your new projects, right? Uh, we used to do that. Right now, uh, we're following a slightly different approach, mm-hmm. starting to work on domain as a separate code base, like as a simple C-sharp class library, mm-hmm. uh, bringing in, starting like to sketch with messages and then value objects, and that's actually what I'm doing. One of uh, at score systems. Mm-hmm. Then we would start shaping the logic into the aggregates, Mm-hmm. Uh, adding like the event sourcing core and adding projections, maybe adding some console hosts. And then if it, that works, then we'll be adding like more kind of formal app application services, aggregates, processes, domain services, et cetera, et cetera. I see. Okay. But when you originally put this template out there for others to see, the intent was that this was sort of the, a starting point oh. for, for an aggregate with, and event sourcing project. 
Yes, uh, it's not. Uh, it's uh, currently, I'd say, it's not a starting point. It's a, a reference point for full-blown implementation, yes. like uh, the entire uh, infrastructure stack. Because, like, when I need to, for example, update one of my projects to the latest, look at SecureS, mm-hmm. I start by copying uh, simply the latest code from for the specific classes from look at SecureS and CAS domain mm-hmm. uh, to the specific project I'm working on. I see. Okay. And so when you initially named this software as a service dot contracts dot domain, why did you name it that? Was because this is sort of the beginning of the plumbing you would need if you were trying to implement a software as a service type application? Uh, at that point, I was still really confused uh, with uh, DDD. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm still confused with uh, <laughs> a lot of from DDD right now, but maybe a little bit less. Uh-huh. So uh, the thing that is currently called CS uh, domain, it probably would be called CES dot uh, security subdomain. Okay. Or maybe it would even be split into two subdomains. Mm-hmm. One is a registration and the other one security subdomain. Oh, registration and security. So the aggregates in there uh, right now, there's, they're all, you know, all three of them register, security, and user all in one, and you might break them out now. Exactly. Although uh, the, the main point of me wanting to reach out to you was that I was looking around at these aggregates and I had a pretty good idea, I thought, of sort of what they were supposed to do and then how they might work together. But because we haven't really gotten into multi-aggregates and all the stuff you have to do to sort of make sure that these islands of objects can actually communicate with each other, you know, that's when I started looking around the processes directory and saw some stuff we haven't gotten into yet. But I I got the general idea that you were pushing messages and um, events around so that they can figure it all out. But we may not even need to get into that. What I wanted to really clarify at the very least was the actual definitions and the intent of what you you intended these aggregates to be. So if we start at the top, I'm assuming register would be the very first one because that's when someone's registering for the new service, mm-hmm. right? So yep. that one was pretty straightforward. You, uh, It just contains the registration info and things like that. So that all made sense. It's registration info. But where I started getting confused was security aggregate. Mm-hmm. What is that thing's job? Why does it exist? What's it for? Okay, uh, so security aggregate mm-hmm. is a collection. Uh, probably it's a collection of information related to authentication and authorization for a single customer. Okay, for a single customer. So, uh, yeah, for a single customer. And each customer account might have multiple user accounts associated. Mm-hmm. These user accounts might have different authentication methods associated. Like it can be a username and password. It can be a authentication key. It can be open ID identity, mm-hmm. and the full list of these users is maintained within the security. Okay, so the security aggregate—that's the actual name of it. Securityaggregate.cs. Security aggregate also is associated with a customer, and the way you view a customer is the person or the entity or the company that's signing up right now that we're going to send the bill to. Yes. Okay, and then that thing that signs up that's going to pay the bill, they are then in charge of adding whatever user identities or user aggregates they want to to their own security aggregate. Absolutely. Cool. That made sense. And then that would then mean that in this particular structure, the way it's laid out right now, that if I had a user account in your system and I worked for three different companies, would I actually end up having three different user accounts right now? Uh, Yes, currently it's uh, the approach. Okay, good. 
at least I understood that correctly. At first, I think I got confused because I was trying to figure out like, wait a second, how does one user account get used across multiple billing customers? and, and Business entities. Yeah, business entities. And the answer is they don't. You duplicate them because that's a corner case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yes. got it. All right. So then I know what register does. And then I think that all starts to make sense. Like when you start looking into the code, it looked like it was basically something like, uh, and I'm going off of memory. I'm not looking at the code exactly right now, Mm -hmm. but it seemed like what was happening was the assumption was made that if you're on the registration page and you type in whatever there is in the registration info, that you are sort of simultaneously saying, hi, my name's Carrie. I'm a new customer. I'm with company, whatever. And please create my company account that you're going to bill. And I'm also going to be the first user for this company. Okay. And then I I think I also become like the administrator by default or something. Well, we currently don't have administrators. Uh I've just forwarded you the link to look at a registration page. Ah, okay. Uh, Basically, that's the exact information that's being included into the register. Uh Because I've ripped this part of the security, almost everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is available in the sample uh, was taken from uh, look at uh, authentication authorization code. Okay, I see. Yeah, I'm looking at that page right now, and it's got email, password, your name, company, and then yeah, I pick my currency and phone. And then is the assumption that like whatever I type in there, like that, it seemed like the code like duplicates that and says like we're going to create a brand new billing customer called whatever this company is. We're mm-hmm. going to use whatever name and phone number is in there for not only the company contact, but the first user's information as well. Yes, okay. because like the first person who is registering, probably it's both the entity and the first user. Totally. It seemed like that's what the, that was, was happening. I just wasn't sure mm-hmm. if I was reading the code right. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. That makes sense. Uh, probably one additional uh, maybe confusing question is, mm-hmm. well, but first of all, like, the most important part, it was the first step at uh, getting unified authentication and authorization system for LOCAD. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably it will change within the next few months because I'm working on an improved version based on the experience that we've learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how it is implemented right now and how it is implemented in uh, this partial open source extract from the uh, private code base uh-huh. is that when somebody new registers, like the registration process is managed by the registration aggregate, and the registration aggregate, it asks the system, the infrastructure, to create a new security aggregate and also to create new customer aggregate. So billing information, uh, contact information, it's, uh, this kind of stuff is stored within the customer aggregate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not presented in this sample. Right. Uh, this customer aggregate is responsible for maintaining the balance. Uh, it will keep track of invoices, uh, balance due, invoice notifications, etc., etc. Security aggregate is responsible for uh, keeping a list of uh, users uh, associated with uh, that customer uh, business account, business entity or customer account. Mm-hmm. And also there is uh, one different type of aggregate called user aggregate. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically what I've done here, I wanted to separate uh, security from users. Uh, for example, when you create a new uh, user, like it can be password user, mm-hmm. then not only a new uh, entity is added to the security aggregate, a separate aggregate route is created for that user. So basically, uh, this happens through the uh, replication process. Mm -hmm. It's uh, the replication port uh, class in the code. Uh, So uh, basically, uh, what it does, it's simply when something happens inside the security aggregate, it forwards the change to the specific user aggregate. 
And so a security aggregate, it simply maintains a list of users mm-hmm. associated with this, uh, with this specific customer account and maybe enforces a few invariants. And distinct user aggregates, like they are different representations of the users, and they actually contain a lot more information. They contain user-specific information related, for instance, to locks and unlocks of users. Because, uh, for instance, if users fails to lock multiple times within a certain uh, time window, then we have to lock him. When a user manages to successfully authenticate or successfully unlock his account, then we allow his unlock. Right. Okay. And also it maintains like uh, usernames and information from this aggregate. Like uh, it is also propagated to different systems. Because, for instance, we have a public forecasting API, which is a REST service, uh, which allows you to use locate forecasting capabilities for a simple HTTP uh, REST interface. And this uh, service is located within different subsystems, mm-hmm. uh, located on Windows Azure, highly, highly scalable. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this system needs to have its kind of own cache of user accounts mm-hmm. to be able to authenticate each incoming request. So what we're doing, we have a kind of separate projection that tracks all the user states. Mm-hmm. It projects them into different like uh, documents and then pushes these documents to a separate uh, subsystem. Oh, okay. So you, by me as a billing customer, when new users get added to my customer account on the back end, you're sort of replicating that user store so I don't have to enter them again over there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So if I'm mistaken, like this informa- like when you're creating a new user, its information will be replicated to uh, our big file storage. It will be replicated to the API storage. It will be replicated eventually to the sales cast account, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's not replicating to like one ruling low-cat account for any billing account, but for one customer account, for one billing entity, assuming that that security aggregate is managing all those users for one company, you guys take all those changes and replicate it around to your other bounded contacts or your other products, if you will, uh, services, so that I don't have to worry about those users existing. The management's handled for me. Yes, absolutely. Got it. Now, when you look in the registration aggregate, I think we might have covered that, but I just want to double check. It looks Mm -hmm. like you have some magic in there that says, hey, if you really want to be lazy on this registration page, you don't even have to type in a password. I'll create a good one for you and send it to you or something. Like mm-hmm. You make yes. it really easy to sign up. And then at the very end, I see that it looks that's where it took the registration info and creates that security and customer stuff for you. It just derives uh, some normal intelligent defaults so that the rest of your infrastructure and your customer stuff can get set up. Then registration created event gets fired. And then the method attach user to registration. Okay, this that's, might be the confusing. Yeah. So uh, he, uh, here, like one of the reasons why the Lookup Secures code is shaped the way that it, it is, mm-hmm. is that the syntax, the way to express our command handlers and the interactions between them is really limited. We can do this only for the application services. An application service is a class that can host multiple command message handling methods, which we call command handlers. And usually by default, uh, within this methodology, we, uh, we assume that the command handler, when it handles the command message, it can publish the event. And then in the other bounded context, we can have a port which listens to this event. And in response to this event, it might say send a command to its own application service. Okay. And here, we kind of have registration aggregate, which has to communicate with security aggregate. 
and also with customer aggregate. And it does this by publishing an event saying a registration was created. Yes. And then this event is actually routed to both security aggregate and also to the customer aggregate, which is the latter is missing from the sample. Yes. Uh, this is maintained in registration port class. Right. Yeah. And the yeah, and that processes folder in the yep yeah, in the SAS domain project and the processes folder that registration port is is where these things are getting forwarded to the other people that care about them. Yes, and also backwards. So basically, when registration happens, we publish the registration created event or when registration is started. Then, when registration is created, mm -hmm. we send command to security saying create security from registration. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, when security aggregate processes the registration, mm -hmm. it will publish additional events saying security registration process completed. That's the second method in registration port class. Inside the processes folder, inside the SAS domain. Yeah, when registration created, forwards token to customer, and then it says flow to security. Yes. Create security uh, from registration. Yep, okay. Yes. That's the command on security aggregate. And when this command completes execution, mm -hmm. uh, one among the methods it publishes, mm -hmm. it's security registration process completed. That's the event. And when this event happens, we send it uh, back to registration aggregate saying, okay, the security process is completed. Attach this user to re registration. Like that's the first user that has been registering. After the first user, that's the only time that ever gets attached, right? Yes. Okay, so all that's doing is saying like, Carrie just tried to register. We are eventually consistent, so let's send it off to, to security. Let's make sure security did its job. Security confirms that it actually did it, so we're good to go. Now make sure that our initial registration record is accurate and attach that first owner user to registration. Yes, and then uh, basically in the production code, we're waiting for two aggregates to complete the process, security and for the customer accounts. Yes. And uh, when both either of them finishes, they uh, like events from this aggregate mm -hmm. sent back to the registration aggregate as a command, like attach user to registration, maybe attach customer to re registration. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at the end of the methods which handle these commands, we try, we execute try complete registration. So basically, we, it says, like, did we have any problems and were we able to successfully do everything needed? I see. And like you can see the commented out customer stuff, but that's where it probably would make more sense if you actually saw the production code that these things that you're reaching out to customer and security are doing sort of a workflow. And this is the way they reach back to registration to say like, hey, we actually did all the stuff that we needed to do when someone registers. In the current code, so the workflow has been, it's still there, but it was simplified. So we are waiting just for the security. Cool. And then you can see in the current code that when that registration created in the registration port uh, file, you can see that when registration created, you see it reaching out to customer and security, and then the flow to customers just commented out. But that you can see where you would do yes. usually both of those. That makes sense. Yes. Cool. And then uh, the flow goes back to the registration. It mm -hmm. uh, sees that the security was created, and it publishes registration succeeded. This registration succeeded event, it goes for the projection. And inside the projection, like we're saying, okay, we have a list of registration statuses per uh, random registration ID. Mm -hmm. So in the end, like it might take a few seconds or maybe it might take minutes or hours if the server is down. There will be a registration ID 
and then it will the other part of the document will say, okay, this registration attempt was successful or not. If it were successful, here is the new user ID, uh, here is the new user display, here is the new unique user token. And what web browser does at that point, the customer ha- is waiting for this registration to complete, mm-hmm. and usually it takes seconds. And the browser keeps on pulling uh, for this registration document. As soon as it sees the registrations like result, registration success or failure in this document, it pulls it. If it's failure, it will display the failure reason. If it's success, then it will grab the user ID, it will grab the user token, and use this to uh, log in immediately new user into the system. So that all that flow back to the registration is really just so you can inform me that like this process worked or not, and then if it worked, automatically log me in. And then at that point, the registration data probably just becomes more like an audit, and you don't even care about it because once you log me in, what matters is that I'm a customer, I have a security aggregate, and I have a user aggregate. Like, yes, yeah. So yeah. a lifetime of a registration aggregate is basically just a few seconds usually. But the reason you're sending that information back is so you can display it after the registration process it succeeds and then move me over sort of into my new SaaS instance where registration goes away. It's just a history of uh, how I got registered, and I'm really not going to use the registration information anymore when I log in in the future. Yes, absolutely. Got it. Okay, cool. I think when I look through security and user now that it's going to make sense, but let me just double-check on the naming stuff. So I'm looking in security aggregate. And then um, I think in the security aggregate on line 31, there's a method called add password. That's the way that me as an owner of a billing customer, when I add a new user, I'm adding a user and a password. That's the way to, that's really could be called add new user and password or something, right? Yes. Okay. Got it. Add identity. The way I read that was that's the way that if I wanted to use like an open ID external token. Exactly. Cool. Got it. And is that, um, let me look at that. It looks like it's just a password and a string. Does that just work with open ID or like how does that actually work? Uh, okay, so with password, actually, uh, we're persisting in the end in the events hash mm-hmm. and salt. Mm-hmm. With identity, we need to persist just the identity. So, uh, for instance, Google Open ID. Mm-hmm. Or what we do here, like when a user wants to log again with his Google account, mm-hmm. the system redirects him to the Google to authenticate his identity. Mm-hmm. And then Google will return an identity from its server saying, okay, this user, like the user that is trying to log in, he claims to be somebody and this is his real identity that we can verify. Uh, for Google, it's like really a random string. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're using something like my open ID, then the identity that is verified and returned by the server would be something like hpabdulin.myopenid.org uh, or something like this. When I'm actually using like a web page to add an identity to a user, I'm not entering that string. What you're doing is you're redirecting me to whoever I'm going to auth with and whatever string that that service passes back to you saying, this is the way your application uniquely identifies this user forever. That's what you're storing okay. as string identity. Mm-hmm. And then the string display is just something you call like Google yes. Open ID. Okay, got it. That well, means- Google is some oh, like really random string. And <laughs> actually, what we're doing in production for uh, at Locad uh, is we're offering the user to create Open ID identity, like a new user for somebody else, mm-hmm. by entering his name and his email account. And then uh, we'll be sending this email to the user. And then user, when he clicks on the link, he'll go to the hub, to Locad hub. And then he'll be able to either link this new invite to his 
open ID identity or enter a password in one game. Oh, that's right. I did see an invite in there. So that's what the invite is. It's when your admin or company owner adds a new user to your company, they can send it directly to that user and, and you can chain, yes. it, chain it from there. Okay, that makes sense. Security, uh, iDomain identity service. What's that? Uh, that's a unique incremental number generator. Oh, it okay. keeps track the highest ID that was used. Okay. And then this create salt, create token, create hash passwords, that's just infrastructure code that you have in there that just kind of makes things secure and so that when you're persisting in the event store that the stuff's not plain text, right? Kind Absolutely. Of. And when it's uh, replicated, uh, like this users, user uh, information is replicated to other subsystems as well. Mm-hmm. And we can't uh, afford to store or send around passwords in plain text. Right. Because uh, users they might be using the same password that was used in his other systems. Mm-hmm. Because people sometimes uh, like to stick to their well-known passwords. Right. Uh, so that's why we're uh, sorting and hashing them. Mm-hmm. To uh, all And sort is needed uh, to reduce, what's the word? Basically to make the code slightly more secure because uh, this makes it harder to use uh, rainbow hashes and also to paralyze cracking on this password should this code get to some, like, should our persistent code get uh, be leaked because of Windows Azure leak or something like this uh, to somebody else. And so we're sending out two different systems, a hash and salt for the password, and when they need to authenticate user by their password, so each subsystem will hash the password into hash using the provided salt and compare the hash with the, the one that is stored. I see. And then this create token, is that the token that you that LOCAD uses internally to identify the account? Uh, so token is it's a random string that is used to identify user. So for instance, when user logs in with the browser, we're storing his identity as a cookie. Yes. And within cookie, we include the token. Probably we could include user ID and just encrypt it. But this, like, uh, generally with the browsers, you can't trust the browser because it can be cracked because the cookie is visible to everybody. I see. So that's uh, to prevent uh, the cracking and to prevent somebody changing his user ID from 1 to 2 to 707 mm-hmm. and then uh, logging in as that user. We're a persisting random token, uh, which are much harder to crack because you'll have to enumerate a really large space. And that token's not random every session. That's just a token for carry is this token, and that's what will be passed to the browser when he's in the session. Yes. Okay. I'd say it's a uniform internal look at identity. Okay. And we got our security password added. I read that event, security password added. The way I read that in my head is you successfully added a new user and a password to the security aggregate for this customer. Yes, exactly. Okay. Security process completed. That's Now those make a lot more sense because that's the event you fire off so that everybody else that cares about these changes can know about it with the ports and everything. Mm-hmm. Remove security item. When you say remove security item, is it always is that really remove a user or is it, can you remove stuff besides a user? Well, a user can be a user with password, user with identity, or user with key. So when we're saying remove security item, we're passing the ID and we'll remove either of these items. Oh, I see. Re- remove one of these things from the security aggregate that's related to yes. this user ID. Ah, that makes sense. That's what the kind is. And hey, the light bulbs are going off. Cool. Update display name. That's just the user's display name, I guess. Yes. And then add permission to security item. This is one is not used. At all? Ever? No. It wasn't worth it. 
Oh, okay. Was that how you thought you might just add strings that meant like claims or something? Is just whatever. You could assign any string you want to a user account and your code could check those strings for some kind of role-based authorization. Yes. Yes. Got it. We don't need to get into the other stuff because something tells me that we'll eventually get to sort of uh, the cool stuff that's in the processes folder, the registration port and the replication process. I don't know if that's going to change with the new infrastructure you're working on, but... Hopefully it will. So basically, uh, the processes, well, a port, like, uh, currently the naming is confused. These are the classes that kind of uh, sit between the bounded contexts or sit between the subdomains mm-hmm. and uh, listen for events from one subdomain and uh, send the commands to usually another subdomain. Mm-hmm. They are put to a separate folder in a separate class to allow easily tracking the message chains. Okay. This is a bit complexity from the command handling nature of Locust SecureS. The code that I'm working or, uh, or working and thinking about right now is to simplify this uh, noticeably by introducing actors into Locust SecureS, probably uh, using stacked, stacked for that net. Uh, it's probably the only robust actor library on C Sharp on that net that I know, I'm aware of. It's tempting to look at all this other stuff, but I told you I wouldn't try to drag it out too long. But uh, basically, my reading of the code sort of hinted that the way that your views sort of do uh, checks on, like, does this user exist and, you know, give me a list of all the users, that's the stuff that's in this user index stuff, right? Yes. Okay. And user index is just a projection that uh, listens to the uh, security password added, security identity added, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And when this happens, it updates the user index lookup view. Then there is aggregate, which simply checks this user index lookup uh, by using user indexers. And I'm assuming uh, when you remove the items and everything, too, those projections get updated for all those changes, too. That's how they stay up to date. Absolutely, yes. All right, cool. Uh, the main bounded context is simply the static class, which wires uh, application services, uh, ports, uh, projections, and tasks together. It's used by the infrastructure cool. to load like all the look at SecureS elements from a single uh, project. Mm-hmm. In the way that Locat Secrets is currently implemented, one thing I was struggling with a little bit is when you look around, at least in the .NET space, for the topics on authentication and authorization, almost all the examples are in you know the ASP.NET membership provider. They're assuming you have some kind of SQL database on the back end, and if you don't want to use a SQL database as your back end, um, there's not really a ton of information on that. So what that leads you down the path of is, okay, some of these things let me implement interfaces to use a different account store, you know, with my usernames and passwords in it. That's not a SQL database, but they don't really show you how to do it. They just say, you know, here's the interfaces you need to implement. Good luck. And so I think if you're, if you're looking at the look at CQRS sample, your account store and the thing you're writing interfaces over would be wherever the event store is. <laughs> like, is that where in the project is that in there? Is that in the portability stuff somewhere? Uh, so, uh, look at Secure's portability. It's uh, the look at Secure's core. Mm-hmm. And so, there are event store implementations for file and memory stuff. Mm-hmm. And Secure's Azure contains implementation of append only store for Windows Azure. I see. So, if I download this look at Secure's sample as is, is it pre wired for the local file stuff by default? Uh, let me see. <laughs> actually, the engine should be able, actually, should be dual wired by default. Oh. Although I'm not sure if it was updated. Uh, going to the 
build engine. So well, what I'm currently going is uh, going to the CS engine uh -huh. project to the program, which is like the entry point for the console apps. Mm -hmm. Going to the build environment method, and there it's actually it says that it's dual wired. So uh, go to the program class in SAS engine. Mm -hmm. Go to the third method called build environment. Yep. And basically Azure settings provider, it gets the setting by key, either from local application config or web config or Windows Azure config, like if, if either of them is available. Mm -hmm. And if you look uh, slightly below, you'll see that if integration path starts with file, mm -hmm. then we're wiring everything to the file storage. Otherwise, if integration path starts with default or use development storage, this is the storage format for Windows Azure, then we'll be using Azure blobs for event storage, for queues, for documents, for streaming, etc., etc. I see. So it just figures that out because of the way it's checking there. And then um, whichever one it's using, when the security aggregate does its stuff that we've already, we're familiar with, the same kind of stuff that our trusted systems does in GTD, it does its stuff when it persists its state like uh, you know the application service usually does it saves to whatever you're configured to and then th so if, if you were implementing these interfaces if you're trying to implement like a security token service that needs to look in an account store you would need to I guess you would use projections if you wanted to like if your requirement was you need to implement an interface that says give me a list of all the users that's the user projections you wouldn't you wouldn't load up the security aggregate and say... Oh, no, no, that's user, that's user projection. Yeah, you use the projections for that. It's the read. And yeah. Yes, and so in WebUI, which is currently missing from this sample project, mm -hmm. uh, we have the same code that when a web application, for example, starts, based on the configuration, it wires a projection view reader either to Windows Azure or to the file system. If mm -hmm. we're talking about the desktop application, then probably the desktop application would be storing the projections locally and it will be using file storage by default. I guess the better way to ask that question is, and that was confusing me, is in this particular architecture with aggregates and event sourcing and the way that we were learning how to do stuff, your user information is is really the truth is in the event store. You know, that's yes. what the events are. But if you wanted to view something that's the equivalent of your SQL table with your users and passwords in it, and you want to query that, you're actually using a projection. That's what you would report as the truth to the thing that wants a list of users. Yes. Okay. That's where I was getting lost. I'm like, wait a second. Do I need to, does this interface need to load up a security aggregate and start iterating? I'm like, no, no. You're using these persistent read models to, as your database, basically. Yes. All right. And uh, currently, in look at Securus, the only way to project uh, is to take, uh, like, is to subscribe to the events and then uh, receive events one by one and update the document storage, which is like a basically key value storage. Mm -hmm. How whether, like how it is, has been implemented in data platform and also it will be implemented for the future in being the worst. Better way is to at least uh, track the event store, get events in batches that are as large as you want and push this information into the storage of your choice without mm -hmm. being limited to document storage, uh, like which is key-value-based. I see. So you can uh, be uh, pushing the information to Redis or uh, to SQL database or to 
any no SQL uh, storage or SQL storage. For whatever reason, I never put these together because I've never actually tried to implement. Well, what mm-hmm. do you do when you throw away the relational database that everyone builds everything on top of? What mm-hmm. happens? I think it it's correct to say that yes, you have this event store that keeps track of the truth, but when you're trying to query your data and tell the rest of the world about what the data really is, you're using the projections. You don't talk to the event store usually. Yes. All right. Because talking directly to the event store, it will be time-consuming and unnecessary. So what we're doing instead, we're pre-calculating the read models by populating them with the events, by keeping them updated with the events, and pushing that update through immediately as the event happens. So we have this persistent read model, which is almost up-to-date. And whenever the query comes in, it lands exactly to one of the predefined read models and grabs this information. Yeah. And thus, one of the entire point of, of CKRS and separating the you know reads from the writes, and it, this is what all eventual consistency is about, and here's an example of the difference between querying a SQL database directly uh, every time you want to get a list of users versus your user index that's pretty much up to date, but it could be out of date for a few seconds or something. Well, usually uh, like milliseconds. Right. Like so basically the difference with SQL database is that SQL database is a highly complicated engine. It com- uh, contains like query optimizer and the tooling that allows you to query your data in ad hoc way. So you can write these joins, you can write these select statements, you mm-hmm. can write these filters. Mm-hmm. In uh, look at SQLite stuff, well, and in general event sourcing with projection stuff and world we have to write our database in our own way. And we have to, since we want to avoid writing these query optimizers, so we pre-calculate the views in predefined way using a few, uh, like relatively simple code. Yep, and that's why we want to put some thought into designing our events properly so that we have additional data getting passed around for the most important reports or views that we projections that we'd want to generate so that when we need to do these things, we have it available to us. And by doing that extra work, that's where we're getting our easy horizontal scalability instead of buying a $2 million Oracle vertical mm-hmm. license. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, still, if you need to use Oracle in your system, like you need to integrate with some other company using Oracle or SQL, what you can do is define a projection that listens to the events and pushes these events to the SQL database as update and insert statements. I see. Got it. I really haven't actually executed the LOCAD CQRS sample. Like, if you just download it as it is right now on GitHub, do you just fire off the engine project and let that run in a window? Like, is it actually runnable the way it is, or do you have to actually write code to make it do something? I think it's runnable, and it will actually run, like when it starts, Mm -hmm. it will send a command saying create security aggregate. So basically just run the console, and it will uh, display a few commands. Is that the engine project? Yes. Okay. So if I set that as startup and hit play, oh, I know what I was remembering. When you did the um, App Harbor demo that one time, there was actually two things. You started the engine, and then you also implemented a web interface. That's why there was two things. But in this example, I don't need to worry about that. Well, I discarded the web interface for now. Right, right. The way it is now, there's only one thing to start, the engine. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, okay. And there it goes. Cool. Using store, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And then once that is running, oh, I see it's going through its stuff. Yeah. Create a security group created. Now it runs, but I mean, that's it. It doesn't, 
there's nothing for me to do in the console. It's just the engine's up and running saying, okay, send me messages. Here we go. <laughs> right. Well, it, uh, it sends itself one message and then processes it, mm-hmm. but that's basically it. So right. if we had web UI, it would have the ability to process new registrations and uh, handle securities and users. Right. The web UI puts the normal messages in the queue. This thing could read it and off you go. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. Now that you're looking into all this new stuff, the thing I've been reading the last couple of days, which I was joking uh, in email to you that you, I can't wait for you to laugh at me and tell me like, oh, you're overcomplicating this. You don't, you know, we're not going to use any of that because it's, just, we don't need it. But there's definitely a strong push in the .NET universe for people to move over to use federated identity authentication, which is logging stuff in and mm-hmm. authorization, which is the big push is to use claims. And they have a whole way to separate your business domain logic from security authorization stuff. Are you getting into any of that claim stuff? Or are you avoiding it? Or what do you think you're going to do? Uh, well, no, I'm avoiding that for now. <laughs> because like we had uh, quite a lot of pain with open IDs. We had a lot of pain with uh, some other stuff. So currently using the most simple, uh, the simplest approach that is possible. That doesn't require a few books to read. That doesn't require complex setups uh, to make it running. That requires a simple code that you can run on the file system as a single a simple console press. I think what'll be cool is um, at some point when we get to this in um, the Being the Worst podcast and the GTE domain, what I'm assuming is when you need to do some kind of security check and maybe specific domains might only need authentication and maybe don't need a bunch of authorization complexity. But if you did, only the original person that registered who lives in the United States that has a phone number of this is allowed to delete the customer account or something like making stuff up. But if you need to do that kind of stuff right now with the current way you implement it, you would just put that in the, the aggregate method itself. It's yeah. What's going to be interesting and what I'll eventually drive you crazy with is once I understand how we're going to do authorization with the road we go down, what I was excited about is if someone really wanted to buy into the claims-based stuff, which my understanding is there's a lot of goodness there to be had, your DSL tool and the natural way that we break up commands and aggregates aligns perfectly with, I mean, based on my basic understanding of two days of research, I'm like, the cool thing about this is the recommended way to use claims-based authorization is there's some attributes and it kind of makes some of your code look a little ugly. However, it's based on an operation and a resource. And and I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, uh, I just want to be able to add one line here in the DSL tool that says, okay, uh, tell the claims-based authorization system that there's a new uh, action called whatever the command name is, or, you know, Mm -hmm. the resource is the aggregate and the action is the uh, method name. Thank you, you know, Mm -hmm. is the message. And it aligns like one-to-one perfectly. I'm like, you could easily have this infrastructure just spit off all of that claims plumbing that you normally is a pain that by typing in one thing in the DSL, you, you basically have it ready to go for all of your aggregates and messages, your commands and messages, uh, basically well, with, the, with a little bit of wiring, but yes, yes. With a little bit of wiring and some tweaking of the DSL tool, but I was excited because it, it seems like this is actually going to lend itself really well to someone who would want to use claims based, uh, authorization. Yeah, uh, using aggregates with event sourcing, you can actually define really fine-grained security for mm-hmm. each user saying, okay, this user might be able to call these methods and mm-hmm. the methods will be human-readable because they're commands. Yes. And this user will be able to view these views and like do a really flexible and 
also complicated stuff. Yep. If that's really needed and worth it. Right. If it's needed and worth it. And um, we're going to be looking up your old blog post probably at some point that there was somebody that was messing around with uh, the DSL tool to implement some custom stuff. And who knows if I'll play with that. But yeah, it, it seemed like it was going to work out pretty well. And the only other question that came up when I was looking at that was, I, I guess, if you were using, even without claims based, if you were just using code that was uh, checking a method to see who's allowed to execute it or not, in this approach, you would implement it at the aggregate level where the methods are. That would sort of be the server side last resort, like, you know, I'm the guardian of security here and I don't care what the client says. This for sure is the final authorization. That would be inside the aggregate. Or maybe even simpler inside the application service. Yeah, yes. Before you could. calling method on an aggregate. Yeah, you could do that. As long as you would assume that there's never a chance for an aggregate method to be called outside of an application service. And I think in our model, that's true. So you would do that. But then if you wanted to do client side authorization, how would you tell the client that might be disconnected right now? Hey, don't even bother sending this command because you're not allowed to. Like, how do you get those rules out there? uh, Since we would store the rules uh, in the event streams, Mm -hmm. Case of the occasional connected client, mm-hmm. uh, the client when it can finally actually connects either for the first time or for the next time, it will get a couple of uh, this related event stream, mm-hmm. and it will be able to have its own in-memory projection, for example, of this event stream into some structure that uh, provides simple querying, mm-hmm. like the trusted system projection in a GTD project, mm-hmm. and then uh, before, like in the code, we'll write something like when customer opens up this screen, if he doesn't have this uh, resource available to him, then we don't display this button. I see. So that's how you replicate it out to those other clients. Yes, in case of occasional connected distributed system. Got it. Otherwise, if it was connected, you would just have the server tell you when you're creating the view or the web page would query the you know, web page is by definition typically connected and the, the server could just, you know, return the view then. But if you had some Absolutely. desktop client on an airplane, you would have to do this replicating the event stream rules and do local projections and things like you said. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. That's awesome. I understand. So thank you very much. So what we'll likely see in, um, in the next uh, iteration of the registration user process is lessons learned on how you can make what is in Locat CKRS a little bit better and easier to deal with and maybe more generically applicable, but not sort of revamping the whole infrastructure to claims and all that stuff. Uh, so basically, the aggregates probably will stay almost the same as they are. Mm-hmm. The only difference being is that the command handlers and application services which connect them together mm-hmm. might be implemented differently using the actual model. I see. So it will basically we might have a slightly different approach to host aggregates. Core of the aggregates will be still the same, and then since we're using the actor model, the processes would be implemented a bit differently. Hmm. Uh, because like this methodology of handling executing code with command handlers and event handlers, I believe it's relatively new and it showed up only within the SQRS. It's just a few years old. Mm-hmm. The actor model has been around for decades. Like there are PhDs written on that. There are lots of articles written on that. There is a really extensive study about this way of linking uh, message-based systems, message-based objects, in a way that it's easily understandable. And you can understand that and you can reason about that. You can think about that. It's a way of linking application services together without worrying too much about which thread this runs on 
or how many threads do I dedicate or how do they communicate? I see. It's more flexible and more simple. So you're going to be coding uh, for 15 hours straight for the next four days, right? And in the next episode, have a ton of new awesome code, right? <laughs> Ideally, yes. Well, I was just kidding. So just no pressure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think that's what we have to look forward to is um, you'll finish your exploration and discussions and then you'll start implementing some cool stuff to check out. Yes. And basically, like the stuff that I've been talking about, the security and the actors, I'm currently in parallel uh, at Locat, uh, busy with capturing the new requirements for the uh, like authentication, authorization, uh, billing, customer management domain. And what I'm trying to do is uh, try to use a new approach, which would be simpler, which allow me to capture these requirements in more flexible and more robust way. And so this work, like the public part of the work of the infrastructure, maybe some authentication on authorization, it will be shared with uh, Being the Worst. Awesome. Well, um, I think that'll do it. We are at beingtheworst.com. Leave your comments there, questions, whatever. Uh, we are on Twitter at Being the Worst. I'm at KC Street. Henry Knott is at Abdulin. Anything else, dude? May the force be with you. Oh, is that going to be the normal sign-off now? I need to get the music now and all that stuff. All right, guys, well, uh, we're out of here. Take it easy, and we'll talk to you next time. See ya. Thanks, bye. Bye.